Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That is everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is God's word. You know, I'm, I'm not actually at all embarrassed to admit this, but Benny's answer was so good, I need to make a couple adjustments on my sermon real quick. So uh, if you guys could just allow me just uh, about 15 seconds. Yeah, there we go. Okay. That's going to go crazy. All right. Groovy. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it, man. Dude, next time, we just got, where's Benny at? Where's Benny? Yeah, yeah, dude. Next time, I'm just going to come to your house and work on my sermon there because spinning some gems today. All right. Also, for anyone worried about the, the brackets that we started with, all I did was replace the word he with Jesus, and the he was referring to Jesus. So I didn't, I didn't swap Jesus in where he wasn't supposed to be. I just don't want you guys to be worried, because I understand. All right. Let me pray for us, and we'll get, and we'll get cracking. Father in heaven, Lord, we, uh, we're here. For whatever it took to get us here, we are here, and we are grateful. Um, we're grateful to be here amongst, uh, amongst your children. We're thankful to be here thinking about you and talking about you. And uh, we just want to, uh, to take this time to reflect, to reflect on the message that you have for us, to see just how that would interact with our fears, our concerns, uh, the things that are going great in our lives today and the things that are maybe going less than that. Would you please just uh, help us with your story, and where we fit in it today. So uh, please speak a good word over us, Lord, and we pray this sincerely in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So one of the very first movie nights that we did here at Mission was a movie called First Reformed. Now, some of you guys might even be like, first movie night, what's, what's that? We did it for a while, but for a few years, we would pick a movie every month, and we would sit and we would watch it together. And these weren't, you know, we always prided ourselves that these were not like God's not dead quality movies. If that's your vibe, you know, more power to you. But, you know, we wanted to talk about movies that did a really good job of tackling really heavy themes that tended to intersect with our faith. And so one of the first movies that we ever did was a movie called First Reformed. And if you've ever seen it, I guarantee you've never forgotten it. Let's just put it that way. In that movie, there's this really interesting kind of showdown between two characters that happens near the end. And both these characters are pastors. The first one is the main character of the movie. He's uh, a pastor of a very small, dying, uh, basically tourist trap church of about maybe eight or 10 people. 
and he's, uh, you know, hiding an alcoholism problem. He's got some horrible health issues. His, his wife ran away from him. His, his, his uh, adult son passed. Like, just a guy who's dealing with a lot of turmoil, and the other is a uh, you know black dude pastor of this massive mega church. Dude's just brimming with charisma and charm, but he's you know he's got a mind where you think this guy's more of a corporate guy than he is a church guy. He's got you know kind of this I don't have time for this vibe to the whole conversation. And the topic of their conversation is creation. The, the, the first guy played by Ethan Hawke is saying, look, like, we're Christians. We have a responsibility to say something about what's happening with the environment. We, we need to, to be doing something. Like, God wants us to be doing something for this world, and it's currently just, just falling apart all around us. The other pastor is super dismissive. Literally, one of my favorite parts of this scene is he's on like a swivel chair. And as, as Ethan Hawke's just like getting more and more passionate, he just kind of like turns his chair to where he's like literally like putting his back to him. And his response is like, look, God destroyed the world once. He could destroy the world again. Who are we to say that what's happening with climate change isn't exactly what God wants us to do? But his big criticism against Ethan Hawke is, you just don't live in the real world. You're completely detached from reality. If you knew what it took to run a big church and to have a big staff team that demands a lot of you, then you wouldn't be so critical of what the church is doing. Just a, it's like such a perfect like, clash of these two very, very different characters. I'd encourage you guys to watch it, but it's also wild and don't watch it with your kids. That's all I'll say. <laughs> now, the, the argument is centered around this idea of creation. And, and interestingly, we, we, we have to talk about this. The two characters were right. We are Christians we know very well, I'm sure I could pull most of you guys, whether you come from a church background or not, and you'd know that the first line in the first book of the Bible is, in the beginning. Exactly. You guys know it better than I do. I don't even know it. I just wanted you guys to. So, uh, so it, it asks us an important question, which is what are we supposed to do with this world that we're living in? What does it mean that we live in a world at all and we aren't just floating balls of consciousness, just, you know, just minds that exist in the ether? What does it mean that we exist as, as human bodies with molecules made up of chemicals and compounds, that we're composed of matter? What does that mean? Or does it mean anything? Let's, let's, let's address that. Last week, like I mentioned earlier, Andy spoke to us about this question of what does it mean that God is a God who speaks, that he has a message to communicate to his people. Today, the question I want to answer is what does it mean that God is a God who creates? 
Now, the passage that we're going to be leaning on today is actually, believe it or not, not Genesis 1, the passage that you guys just kindly repeated for me. It's actually from the book of Colossians, which is a very different book altogether. Now, Colossians was a, uh, like many of the books in what we call the New Testament, was a letter written by this figure named Paul, who was one of the key teachers of the very, very early church after Jesus died and ascended to heaven. It's a letter that he's writing to these, this uh, people group in a town called Colossae, which is why it's called Colossians. And this passage tells us a lot about the world that we live in, but interestingly, and I think more fittingly, it tells us a lot about God. And more specifically, it tells us a lot about Jesus, the Son of God. And so what I'd like for us to do is uh, I'm going to kind of split this. It's, it's going to feel like two sermons, but it's, it's not. I'm going to go through three points tying Jesus and the creation together. And just to define creation, I think we could say literally anything that we see and experience in the world around us would count as creation. So nature, I think, is creation. The, the things that we make as people is creation. You know, the earth, the galaxies, the stars, the waters, I think all of that can fit into that bubble, just so we have a good definition there. But I'm going to give us three points about Jesus and connecting him to creation. And then we're actually gonna go back from point one back to point three, and I'm gonna say why these are important at all to talk about. So that's where we'll start. Point one, Jesus, the creator. Jesus, the creator. Referencing our passage from earlier, it says, for in him, being Jesus, All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So the first thing we need to say about creation is that it comes from God. Like we said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first picture that we ever get of God is that he's a creator, is that he, he makes things, he's a designer, he's a divine architect, and that everything that we see is an overflow of God's creative energy. Now, and, and you know, I wasn't planning to get into this, but I had a conversation with Andrew Udarian before, and he twisted my arm. Just joking, Andrew. Um, there, there is disagreement about how Christians come to understand this idea of God's creation. Some people are adamant that when it says that God created the earth in, in a fixed number of days, that it was, it was exactly those number of 24-hour periods and that if you take that away, then the whole Bible just bursts into flames. And then there's others who would say, well, you know, it seems like science has, you know, maybe had some interesting uh, thoughts about what it looks like, the story of the universe unfolding. Maybe it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, I feel determined as your pastor to say definitively what the answer is, and I'm going to do that now. I'm not sure. I'm really not. 
I, uh, I was telling Andrew, I know that there have been a handful of really disappointing times in church history where people like, you know, Galileo, for example, suggested things that we consider scientifically obvious, and the church said, here's another idea, how about I burn you at the stake? And so I, uh, I'm not a scientist, and, uh, and I'm not sure what the timeline of creation looks like, but I think that the, the significance of this story is that God himself did create. Whether it took days to happen or whether it took eons to happen, we should know definitively, regardless of which side we take, that everything that we see was unfolded out of God's creative hand whether it took days or whether it took way longer. Amen. Now, again, not to say it's that, it's that simple, but that's where I'm going to land on that. And honestly, I think that what we miss when we get into these arguments is this. It's not just that God created. It's what he created and how it was created. What, when God created the, the world, when God created the stars and, and the animals and the trees and everything, it wasn't just there. It was good. It was so closely touched by the perfect hand of God that it didn't have a blemish or a problem to it. It was perfect. It was clean. It was pure. It was still an extension of God's loving goodness. That's what we need to focus on. Because behind this story of creation, there's another story that has kind of been told on top of that. And, and I like to refer to this as the uncreation story. Another way that Christians refer to it is the great fall and I consider this the easiest doctrine in Christianity for anyone to believe, whether you're a Christian or not, because it's not an idea to believe in, it's just something to observe. And it's the idea that the world around us is not the way that it should be. That God created things good, which means that people were supposed to be good. And we're not, right? That the, the world was supposed to live in harmony and it doesn't. That there should be things like justice, which we often don't see. That people should have learned to live in community really well. And then you turn on the news and you see, you know, hospitals blowing up and you're like, oh, something's wrong. <laughs> something's wrong. The uncreation story is where we find ourselves right now. And honestly, if you've, it, it doesn't have to be on the news. It doesn't have to be some big swing of injustice. If you've ever uh, witnessed a loved one pass away before you were ready for that to happen, you've experienced this. If you've ever really struggled really, really hard to make, to make your finances come to an end or, or to make your finance, to make your ends meet. Gosh, that's what that phrase is. Jeez. <laughs> I was like, make your finances come to an end. All right. Then if you, if you know what that struggle is like, then, you, then you've experienced it. The idea that things aren't 
the way they should be. I mean, I, I just spent a couple days working with my dad because he just got scammed super badly by some guy who called and said he was a part of some customer service agency and he needed him to get, you know, all this banking information. And, I, and honestly, at this point, I, I really can't get mad at my dad. There's people in the world who make a living trying to outsmart people who are exactly like my father. And that's such a bummer. Like, I remember I'm looking through my dad's emails because he's getting email confirmations for every transaction that they took out of his bank account. And there was a little thumbnail of a picture of a guy who had received some of this money. And I just felt this, like, warm hatred, like, like fall over me where I'm just like, this is the dirtbag who's literally calling up elderly people and taking their information so they can fill their pockets. Like, it's just like, ugh. All the ways we experience that this is not how things are supposed to be. For the teachers in our community, you guys experience it every time you struggle to keep a classroom in order. You experience it when you see the tragic backgrounds that many of your students come from. Our healthcare workers experience it every time you see just what decay and disease can do to the human body. As employees, we see it when a manager makes a decision that sacrifices his employees for a bottom line that's usually financial. We can see it when animals go extinct. We can see it when glaciers melt. We can see it when ecosystems fall apart because of human intervention. We can see it when we feel anxious or depressed. We can see it when we process trauma or grief or loss. The uncreation sits heavily on us. And interestingly, we all have this way of coping with it. Again, whether we're Christian or not. For some people, they just say, well, look, I'm not, I'm not religious, but I, I love my family. I'm going to just surround myself in loving relationships, and I'm just going to try to put as much positivity into the world as I possibly can. But that doesn't take away the sting of the mortal pain, the mortal burden that sits on us. Or we could say, oh, I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just commit myself to my work, to my job, to climb the ladder of success, to just, you know, feel like I'm accomplishing something. It's hard to, accomplishing, it's hard to accomplish something knowing just how finite our existence really is. Or we say hobbies. I'll just, I'll just dive into hobbies. I'll get really good at uh, uh, playing, playing an instrument or I'll, I'll collect all the best stamps in the world knowing that eventually all the material things I'm ever going to put my heart and soul into will eventually disintegrate. It's kind of an existential crisis there. Even Christians have a way of unhealthily coping with this uncreation story. There's this hymn that I used to like a lot and now I feel very conflicted by and it's called I'll Fly Away. I'll fly away. Oh Lord, I'll fly away. And of course I forget it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, 
I'll fly away. It's this idea that like there's this balloon tied to our wrist and eventually I'll get to leave this terrible, broken, burning world behind and float off into the sky and just be better. This idea that there's this spiritual realm that, our, that, our, that we really hunger and that everything physical, this, this matter, these molecules are just gross and we need to just find something way beyond that. We just need to float off into this ether, abandon the world and all of its brokenness and just find something full and complete. We see our bodies as prisons. We see the world and all of its brokenness as a bigger prison. And so we just make our current circumstance into a waiting room that will just one day be gone and then we'll be in something better. So what is our hope in this? My second point, Jesus the human. Jesus the human. Our passage says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Those are some of the coolest words that I think exist in the Bible. So I think I have to say them one more time, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, just to make sure, you know, there's like a little heresy warning over here that him being the firstborn does not mean that he was created. Jesus is exactly as divine as God the Father is divine, as the Holy Spirit is divine. He, he was not created to be firstborn means that he is the first in receiving honor. He is the first in receiving glory. And we'll, we'll get to that soon. But, you know, a little heresy warning. So I got to throw those out there. In every season of the Bible, in every season of God's interaction with his people, God has always created these unique ways to maintain presence with his people. In the garden with Adam and Eve, he's, he's walking around with them. When the people of, of Israel, biblical Israel, are, are traveling around, God is dwelling in this tent with them. There's a time when he appears as this like cloud of glory during the day and a pillar of fire by night. But the coming of Jesus represents something astronomically more significant, that the creator wouldn't just live among created things, that he wouldn't shoot down from the sky in a lightning bolt like Thor, but he would allow himself to be born of a teenage girl and to be raised by a family. The fullness of God at one point dwelled perfectly in a squirming little baby Jesus allowed himself to be covered in skin, filled with blood and bones and ligaments, tendons. The perfect and holy God would be made of the same elements and chemicals and molecules that he had designed as the perfect architect. That Jesus wouldn't hover over the earth, void and uncreated, 
but he would experience it as a human largely obeying the laws of physics that he had written and that he holds into place. In our world's As we mentioned, there's just this painful tension of both beauty and potential, but also so much injustice and violence and heartache. And in this world, Jesus would not come as a cloud or as a ghost or as a tower of fire, but he would come as a human, as a person like one of us. He would become the image of the invisible God the face of the faceless one. Not like the stories of Zeus in Greek mythology where he just comes down to fool around and and, and engage in debauchery. But he came humbly, born to a teenage girl and a carpenter, born into a town of nobodies, born as the holy of holies who would one day be called the son of Mary and Joseph and the brother of James. Jesus came down into the uncreation. But he didn't just come as an observer, just someone to walk around and kind of nod, I imagine, just with a clipboard, just kind of looking around at everything terrible. And he, I don't know, he sees like a wolf eating a sheep and he's like, interesting, okay, interesting. And then he sees like a robbery take place and he's like, "Hmm, fascinating stuff here. My gosh, fascinating He didn't come to be an observer of the uncreation. He actually came to experience it in a deep and meaningful way. All the worst things that our world has to offer from loneliness and pain to fear and loss to tragedy and torture to an unjust death at the hands of corrupt men. All of these things Jesus took on himself to experience. He carried the full weight of what the uncreation had to offer. And at the time of his death, he carried the suffering of humanity and the punishment that humanity had deserved. Jesus, during his time on earth, would bleed and he would weep and he would fear and he would stress out And he would hunger and he would thirst. And after his crushing death, he would take back the life that he offered on our behalf. Which leads us to our next point. Jesus, the glorified one. So we've said Jesus, the creator. We've said Jesus, the human Now we're at Jesus, the glorified one. And we'll go back to our passage again. It says, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." Now, when Jesus came back from the dead, he didn't come back the same as how he was. When he came back from the dead, he came back in what we call a glorified body. Now, what does that mean? To be honest, we're not 100% sure. We know that it was perfected. 
We know that it was a body that was incapable of death or any kind of physical harm. But interestingly, it was also still marked by the experience of his death because he had holes in his hands still. His body was perfectly redeemed. It was closely connected with the divinity of the Godhead that he fully represented. It was marked by the restoration and healing that could only come from the hand of God. And when he came back as a glorified human, he wasn't just coming back to look impressive. He was actually demonstrating that what he was representing was just a glimpse of what was coming for all who would follow him and for all of the world as well. When the Bible says that he was first born from among the dead, that doesn't mean he was the first person to come back from the dead. We know that's not true. Lazarus was a perfect example of a guy who literally had just died and come back. So it's not saying that Jesus was the first person to ever taste death and come back from it. It's saying that Jesus was the first person to die and come back, not as another person who would die again, but come back in life that was fully touched with glory and the perfection of God to be fully restored in all of his areas where he was once broken. And even more than that, the glory of his resurrection wasn't just a promise for those who were to follow him, even though he would say, follow me to receive this too. But it's a promise of, The glory that I'm representing is a glory that's coming to the whole world. It's a glory that is represented when I say that, behold, God is making all things new. So you see, as Jesus is experiencing this, we're witnessing creation in three distinct phases, which is we see the creation, we see the uncreation, and then with the triumph of Jesus, we see recreation. All things being made new. The goodness of God coming to heal that which is broken. Jesus is coming as if he's to say, all things are being made new and I'm the first to show it. So we can see Jesus as the one who begins creation, as the one who carries the weight of uncreation and the one who leads us into recreation. So those are our three points. Now we're gonna go back to the start and we're gonna get a little bit more practical as to what these things mean for us today. Jesus is the creator. Because Jesus is the creator, we can and should enjoy good creative things. The world is still full of beauty. Yeah, it's got a lot of gross stuff in it too. But the the, the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, which means that God didn't just say, ah, you know, I I don't want you to enjoy that. It's still pretty pretty rough around the edges. Like we, we should actually enjoy good things. And whatever that looks like for you, go on a hike. Stand at the top of a high place and look and say, wow, this is amazing. This reminds me of God, who is also amazing. That's a worshipful thing to do. We as Christians should be enjoying good, created things because they remind us of our good creator. 
You don't like hikes? That's fine. I'm like, I'm like okay on them, you know? Uh, but still, you can go, go to Seven Falls. Go to Sabino Canyon. Make your own trail if you're, like, allowed to do that. I'm not, I'm not really sure if you can do that. Um, you know, forget hiking. Listen to a, an album that, that you love that you can sing all the words along to. Enjoy it. Watch a movie that makes you cry really hard or that makes you think or that makes you laugh. Enjoy the creative world that is around you because it is creative. And there are things here that are reflecting the beautiful things of God. There's more than one way to think highly of the good God around us. See a good thing and enjoy it. Make a really delicious meal that takes a lot of work to put together. And then enjoy it with someone that you care for. You know, like, and, and also on top of that, you don't just have to enjoy creative things. You can make creative things. God is a creative creator. So if there's things that excite you, do those things. Take a picture of a friend of yours and then play around with filters or something. I don't know. Is Visco still a thing? Probably. I'm not sure. Make a podcast. I did. It's super fun. It's not that hard. It's not that great. Um, <laughs> No, it's really good. It's really good. Yeah, that was, that was, that was fake humble. That was fake humble. Um, um, cook, cook a meal. Bake cookies and bring them to church. Uh, do creative things that you like. Do your pastor's taxes. I don't know. It's getting complicated for me out here. Help me out. The possibilities are endless, but do good things and enjoy them. And when you enjoy them, think of the God who allows you to do good, cool things and worship him for it. And beyond that, like, remember that God doesn't just do creative things because they're creative. He does creative things out of love. So think, how can I spark this, you know, engine of creativity in a way that also serves, in a way that also honors, in a way that also provides for a need that someone may have? Think about it, like, there's so many interesting things that we can do to serve one another. And I think that one of the areas that churches kind of just force themselves into a corner is they've decided that there's three possible ways to serve the community. And a lot of them are done to death. Let's think outside the box. Let's do something interesting. It's one of the things I love about being involved in Cyclovia. You think other churches care about... Okay, hold on, hold on. Sorry, sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's not true. I'm, I don't... It's just, I'm not here to badmouth other churches. Churches are doing beautiful things. But what I love is the out-of-the-box approach to it. Cyclovia is this beautiful opportunity to say, hey, bike riders, let's have a place where you can be safe away from all of the terrible drivers in our city, of which I am chief. <laughs> but it's just, it's, it's a beautiful way to say, hey, like, this is an underrepresented thing that really helps people, and it's something that people care about. Let's do this. Not just because it's cool, but because it actually reflects our God who loves us and is creative. Also, and here's the flip side, and this is maybe what you guys, some of you guys are waiting for me to get back to after my introduction. To enjoy creation also means we have to give a rip about it. In order to enjoy the beautiful things that we see around us, we have to acknowledge where things are happening that are less than ideal. Honestly, I, I, I love this because I, for a long time, thought 
you know, I kind of bought this idea that to care too much about the environment or about conserving nature was just like this far political idea that was very contrary to the Bible. And then I was sitting in my car listening to a Christian rap album, Deep Space Five to be exact. And a rapper just said this line and it just stuck with me for the rest of my life. He said, what's known of God is manifest in his creation. So defacing the earth is disrespecting his reputation. And immediately I was like, I was wrong. <laughs> this rapper has changed my theology. Thank you, rapper. It was amazing. But it's true. It, it, if we're going to appreciate the beauty that God has given us, we also have to care for it. Because remember, be fruitful and multiply and steward the earth doesn't just mean have a bunch of kids, even though having kids is wonderful. It also means that God was giving us something that we should be looking out for. So honestly, when, you know, vegans talk about how terrible these conditions are that animals have to experience, we shouldn't just be rolling our eyes and saying, well, they're animals, we're humans, we get to call the shots. We should say, actually, yeah, that, that doesn't seem like we're doing what we should be there. Like, why aren't we speaking more about some of these things that are obviously gross and problematic? Questions? My next point. Because Jesus is a man, we can shed our human shame because Jesus is a man slash because Jesus is a human, we can shed our human shame. Again, we, we kind of alluded to this earlier. We, we get this tension when we experience all of the heartaches of being a person, when we're experiencing things like depression, when we're experiencing things like mental illness, when we're experiencing things like physical illness, and we just think, Boy, golly, I can't wait to just ascend to heaven in my spiritual body where I have six wings and I don't look like a person anymore. And I can just be, you know, this ethereal floating feather on the cap of the, of the holy of holies. And it's like, no, you're still going to be a person. Like, heaven is a waiting place where God is truly meaning to bring all that we have before us is a new heaven and a new earth, which means that your body is not bad. Your body is not problematic. It is not less than ideal that you are a human being with arms and legs. And do you know why we can believe that? Because Jesus was a person because Jesus was a human being. We should shed our shame of having to be that because if Jesus can look to us as a person and call us brother or call us sister, then there's no shame in being a human being. I have a perfect analogy for you guys. I love wearing big dog t-shirts. <laughs> They are my favorite shirts in the world, and my wife hates them. <laughs> and I've heard from several sources that big dog t-shirts are the fashion equivalent of an old used coffee filter. <laughs> this is what I've heard. 
But I'll be honest, I love big dog shirts. I do. My dad wore big dog shirts when I was a little kid. They just like, they remind me of a simpler time when the 90s were just whatever. Like, I just, I like big dog shirts. And I love the cringy graphics they have on the back. They're my favorite. Now, imagine if at the next Met Gala, Jay-Z showed up next to Beyonce wearing a big dog t-shirt. You couldn't tell me anything about that ever again. You could never criticize me for wearing a big dog shirt ever again because Jay-Z went to the Met Gala wearing one of those shirts. There's no, there's no shame. There's no shame in our humanity because Jesus has offered to wear it alongside us. And here's my final point. Because Jesus is the glorified one, we can have hope for a better tomorrow. The glory of Jesus, the, the fact that he came back with, with glory, not just as in the same old re, re-polished human body, but with glory, it represents that there's, there's healing coming for us that there are better days coming for us. He's calling his his disciples, he's calling his people, and he's saying there's something better coming for you. And I'm not offering you an easy path. In fact, Jesus would say he's offering us a narrow path, and it's gonna be difficult because his was difficult, and how dare a servant put themselves above a master. But Jesus is saying, "I'm, I'm walking in glory right now, and I'm inviting you to join me in that. I'm walking in healing right now, and I'm offering you to join me in that. See, the beauty of of recreation is recreation doesn't just mean that uh, ecosystems get rebuilt or that glaciers form and polar bears stop dying. Recreation doesn't just happen around us. It actually happens inside of us. Because that's where we feel the uncreation the most, right? It's in our own selves. It's in our own shortcomings. It's in the ways that we hurt ourselves. It's in the ways that we hurt the people around us. It's in the ways that we put burdens on God with our imperfection. So the beauty of the recreation is that it starts right here. And that it's free to all of us who are willing to ask for it. And, and, and even when we, when we accept that, we're just like, gosh, dang, God, I'm glad that I'm doing this, but man alive, this is still really challenging. And God says, don't worry. There's, there's still glory waiting for you. There's still perfect healing waiting for you. Where you are today, you're not gonna be forever. Jesus experienced the life of a human a life, a fixed period of time of difficulty and beauty, of triumph and tragedy, and then his path after that was just glory. And that's us too. We're gonna experience lives. We're gonna experience tragedy, and we're gonna experience triumph. We're gonna experience beautiful things and terrible things. But at the end, glory. He's leading the way for us. He's standing at the finish line saying, you'll be here soon. 
Just keep your eyes on me. I think that's the beauty of it. We have this cool creation story of everything that was supposed to be good that eventually fell apart. We feel the weight of uncreation, but but recreation has already started. And if it hasn't started for you yet, it can literally start today. That we say, God, I'm not sure what's happening in my heart, but I think I need something else. I think I need something outside of myself. And I, I, I think it's you. I think it's Jesus. Would you meet me here, please? If you're feeling that tug, don't, don't ignore it, please. There's, there's better days ahead for whatever you're, you're facing, for whatever's on the horizon for you. There's better days, beautiful days Jesus is already there, and he's going to be with us every step of the way. So the the question we have to ask as we we think through all of this is, well, why, why, John, you said that God had all this beauty and glory, and he was the king of kings, and he was the emperor of whatever, like, and then you said he he swam down to earth and and put on a, a human suit. Why bother? Why would the, the greatest being of, of perfect intellect and unending wisdom put himself through something like that? And the answer is actually sitting in this room. It's the love he had for those who needed him. The reason Jesus would descend The reason Jesus would bear painful, excruciating things is out of love. Love for a bunch of people like us who don't deserve it. And if we tried to work our way into deserving it for the rest of our lives, we wouldn't even break a fraction. But Jesus would descend and Jesus would suffer and Jesus would do everything that he's done Because he's a shepherd who wants to save his lost sheep. And because he sees value in all of us who are broken and wounded and terribly, terribly imperfect. And he sees us. And he loves us. And that's pretty cool. So as we close... All I can say is, uh, if that's a new thought for the first time, like, like chase that. Don't, don't let that just sit there. Like chase that, that thought that the, a beautiful, perfect God cares enough to suffer like a lowly human being for you. He didn't just have like this, this shape of the, like he didn't just have like an image of this globe spinning and he's like, that's who I'm dying for, this big rock of, you know, blues and greens. But he had like faces in mind and every face in this room was on his mind. Think of that. Think of that. Let me pray for us. 
Father, we thank you for, uh, we thank you for the creation. Obviously, uh, it's a big part of us being here. Um, We recognize the uncreation because, again, we just see it. It's just there. It's everywhere we look. It's in ourselves. It's in our families. It's in our friends. It's in our enemies. Um, We recognize it. And, And more than that, we recognize that you, you experienced that for us, that you carried the weight of that for us. You experienced pain that only a human could know and loss that only a human mind could know because you came to us. And so, Lord, as we, as we consider what it means to be healed, would you please continue to draw near to us We all are in need of healing, God. We all need your help. We all need to rely on you. So as we have as many resources as any human civilization has ever had, would we enjoy them but never forget to lean on you for our strength and our courage and our love? Would you please just be present with us and care for us because we need you, Lord? Um, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.